This is the Oasis Church Podcast. We're located in Athens, Ohio, and we use this podcast feed to primarily post the messages from our Sunday morning church gatherings. If you enjoy this message or if you'd like to know more about Oasis Church, please reach out to us at oasisathens at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope that you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. All right, here's where we're at. We're in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 41. So what you're going to find, I'll just give you a little prelude here. We're talking today uh, about Satan and demons. All right, we're going to talk about demons today. Jesus is going to meet a demon. So if you got a Bible, I encourage you to follow along in your Bible. Mark it up. Put your own notes in it if you want. Um, we talked uh, about you know how it's just you know you can do that whatever. But anyway, last week we we introduced Jesus's earthly ministry and we it, and how it began around Nazareth and all those little towns in the Galilean region, and then he landed there in his own hometown, and that's where we spent the you know all of our time last week. Well, one thing I did not get to in that section of scripture is that Jesus says that he is a prophet, that a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. And basically what he meant was he knew what was going to happen as he spoke the things that he spoke in his hometown. And what eventually happened was they kicked him out of Nazareth. And basically people wanted to put him to death already after his first sermon in his hometown. And so basically that's kind of how that section ends. We're going to move on to the next section, which begins in verse 31. And this, is, this week, Jesus is relocating his ministry, uh, and he's moving over to a town called Capernaum. And Capernaum is a town where Simon Peter, we know him, Peter, the, one of the, uh, the, the most popular, one of the most famous disciples, lived in Capernaum. And so it's also in the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, where much of Jesus' ministry actually is going to take place. Uh, throughout the entire Gospel of Luke. And it's all the way up into in, Luke 19 uh, when Jesus finally goes from, at that point, he moves, he starts heading toward Jerusalem. And that's when sort of the, the, the end of his ministry is beginning right there in those chapters. And, and that scene is going to shift tremendously there. So anyway, let's go ahead and read this story in its entirety. And then uh, we'll talk about it. <clears throat> verse 30, chapter 4, verse 31. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. All right, here we go. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was, he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him, thrown him, the man, down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. So this is Simon Peter. This is Peter who would later who would become his, his, his uh, disciple. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. He wanted Jesus to heal her. And so he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. That's verse 41, right? Is there another verse? This is 41. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. I'm sorry, this is a really important one. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. Okay, demons came out of many, some of the people that Jesus was healing. You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And that's it. Boy, I'm glad you caught me there. See, that's, I needed my Bible. That's one of the most important verses of the day. Well, I'm good now. I got it all here now. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> it's not that easily, but thank you. I think it's important to remind ourselves by way of, of just introduction here that this is all, okay, th- because 
of the nature of what this sermon's gonna be like, I think it's important to remind ourselves who is writing, who he's writing to, the kind of logical person this physician Luke was. And it's important to remind ourselves, this is historical fact. Jesus really did live. He really did go to these places, and those places are still there. You could still visit them today. And it says, he went down, right at the very beginning, he went down into Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So on their Saturday, on their day of church, their day of worship, he was teaching again in Capernaum, just like he did in Nazareth, and they were all astonished at his teaching because he had, his teaching had authority. And so what we learn here is we learn more about Jesus's ministry in his preaching ministry of preaching and teaching. And, and, and we're just reminded again that Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was, and that was his primary ministry. His primary ministry, his primary ministry was to teach. He's preaching and teaching from synagogue to synagogue. And now he's in this little town of Capernaum on the Sabbath. And just as Jesus is preaching and teaching in this little synagogue, People were amazed because he didn't teach like anyone else, they said. What does that mean? I mean, I, I think what it means is he didn't bore people. <laughs> he didn't bore people with the Bible. I mean, I really, honestly, when you look back into some of the ways, I mean, some of the things, I mean, we're, we're talking hundreds of years of silence. And so there was just, there was only so much that they could teach and preach on and, and read. And I'm guessing, especially in these small little towns, it probably got pretty boring. Well, Jesus, when he speaks, it's different. And I really honestly think that one of the greatest sins any teacher or preacher can commit is to bore people with the Bible. The Bible is not boring. And I think for us to, for us to bore people with the Bible is actually uh, a sin. And, and I think in that day, there were probably a lot of people, a lot of rabbis who were probably particularly gifted at boring people with the Bible. It was like they would read the comments and then read the footnotes of the comments and then the comments about the comments and the footnotes and the footnotes about the comments and the comments and the footnotes and all this stuff. And they'd probably be like, okay, okay, okay. And it was just dull and dry and boring. And then Jesus shows up and he reads from the scrolls and then he sits down to teach them. And he's enthusiastic perhaps and he's passionate about what he's saying. And he already told us, didn't he, that he would be a spirit-filled preacher, a spirit-led preacher, a gospel preacher. And he, and he began th this ministry back that we read last week around verse 18, where he quoted from Isaiah chapter 11. And he says, and the spirit of the Lord has come upon me to preach good news. So when the spirit of the Lord is actually the one who's speaking, that's what it's, that's going to be the difference. You're going to see that and hear that and know that. And so Jesus preached by the power of the Holy Spirit and he taught by the power of the Holy Spirit. And people were amazed because they had never, ever seen or heard that kind of preacher before. That's who Jesus was. When Jesus was on earth, he was an amazing teacher. Yes, he's God. He was obviously more than an amazing teacher. He is, he was, he is God incarnate. But he was an amazing teacher, a human teacher that, sent, that, he, that he sends out, you, you know, who is being empowered by the Holy Spirit, who, who is God as well. And he sends out the Holy Spirit to empower preachers and teachers today. And that's, that's the goal. And so it says they were astonished at the end of that verse. So let's go back, back to the text, right? Something really, something really wild is about to happen in this little synagogue. <laughs> verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice. When Je so Jesus starts talking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And imagine this, this, this man just kind of stands up and goes, Ha! I know you. <laughs> what 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 have you what are you here to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The demons, I know who you are, and he calls him the Holy One of God. So one thing that you'll note about demons in the Bible is that they have some of the highest Christology. All, in, in, in all the Bible. What I mean by that is the highest theology of Christ. They know who Christ is. Demons know who Jesus is. And that's an amazing thing. I mean, a lot of other people don't get it. They don't, they don't, they don't get, they don't see who he is. But the demons know who Jesus is and they call him the Holy One of God. They see him and know, whoa, wait, what's he doing here? He's in a category all of himself. He's one of a kind. And that is Jesus. That is who he is. And they know him. And so he's preaching and he's teaching there in the synagogue. And, and you know, remember, the, the synagogue is like the old covenant church, their regular meeting. Like what we're having here today, that's what the synagogue would be in, in, uh, in all those little towns. And 
Who does he have an interaction with and a conflict with early on here in his ministry? A demonized man, a man who has an unclean demon. Now, this is a word, unclean demon is a word that will actually show up. If you're, if you're marking your Bible, just you can, you can underline that unclean demon. It shows up about 23 times or so throughout the Gospel of Luke. So in this book alone, we're going to see this happen a lot. Jesus keeps having these encounters with, with demons. And, and, as, and as the kingdom of God becomes more known, there is more opposition of the king, you know, from the kingdom of darkness. And then there's this battle that is just raging throughout the totality of the gospel of Luke. And that's one of the things you're going to see unfolding is this spiritual battle all the way up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And so you're going to get really familiar with Satan and demons throughout the course of this study of, of the gospel of Luke. So just, just be ready for it. So here's, here's what we see is this. This demonized man is in the synagogue. <laughs> and in the Old Covenant, remember, the Old Covenant church, the, old, the synagogue was the equivalent of our church today. So what does that tell us? Well, I think it tells us this. Don't mistake for a minute that all the people in the church are great and all the people outside the church are demonized. I mean, there are demonized people among God's people as well. Just like Satan filled, I mean, for example, Judas Iscariot, one of the followers of Jesus. Satan filled his heart and his mind, and he was compelled toward murderous action, betrayal of Jesus. So even in the church, Satan will empower people who might be really regular church people. And for those who are unbelievers, he actually will indwell. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. What I mean, I mean, what do I mean by that? Well, look, it's really easy to see. All over the church, this happens. Satan has a way of causing division and strife, conflict, controversy. And Jesus, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, right? And then he commissions those who are pastors and teachers as what we'll call under shepherds. So shepherds who serve under Jesus, but also are, are, are given like people to, to, to teach, to take care of. And the church is like then, like a flock then. And Satan loves to send in wolves to every flock and ravage the flock and also to attack the under shepherds. And so here what we see in this church, in this synagogue, in the very first, you know, this is where like the New Testament church is just starting to, to we're starting to get take, to, to take shape. Jesus is showing us what it's going to look like. And we're already seeing it in Jesus's early on ministry that Satan will empower and use people to, to attack God's people. And so I think what we need to do today is we need to study, we need to take today and study demons and Satan. Sound good? <laughs> Some of you are like, what? You might be wondering, why would you do this? Well, we're not deciding to do this. God's deciding to have us do this. He's the one that wrote the scriptures. He put it in the scriptures. This story is there. And as we go through the books of the Bible, we're not going to just talk about stuff that we want to talk about. We're not going to skip things just because they're weird or we don't want to think about them or they're, un they're hard to understand. We need to talk about it. So this is a real thing that happened. We've got to talk about it. We got, and it's not just a real thing that's going to happen once. This happens over and over again. In fact, in this same exact passage of Scripture, it happened again. There were other people that came, and that was happening again. And so you're actually going to learn about this repeatedly. So let's just jump right in here, okay? And so I, I just want to say, so that one of the greatest books that you could ever read to get an understanding of Satan and demons is C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Actually, the best book to read is the Bible. I'll give you a handful of scriptures that you can write down to go to, to so you can hear in just a minute. But C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's been years since I've read, the, uh, read this. But in it, he talks about Satan and demons and and it makes an interesting statement, you know, C.S. Lewis makes an interesting statement. And, uh, and here's a quote from that book. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race could fall about the devils. So he's talking about the devils. He's talking about Satan and all of those who, who, are, who are among his followership and, and evil reign. C.S. Lewis says, there are two great errors that we could fall into. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And so what he's saying is like, hey, you know, as soon as you say demons, like as soon as I say that here in the church service, 
people will typically go one of two ways. Like the, one of the, the first ways, if you're like me, honestly, I'm, I'm a, I tend to be a rational, logical person. I tend, to, I tend to focus a lot on things that I can make sense of with one of my five senses, right? I mean, that's just, that's just, that's just where I am. So when you say demons to people in the church or people outside the church, anyone, some people might go, eh, okay, do those really exist, right? I've never seen a demon, right? I don't, I don't really worry about them. I don't necessarily believe in them. Just move, can we move on? You're making me feel a little awkward, right? I get that. I get that. that may, and that might even be some of you here or some of you watching online. On the other hand, <laughs> I've met people like this too. There are some people who have an unhealthy, just an inordinate obsession with Satan and demons, like even in the church, right? And, and what, what happens is like they'll blame Satan for everything, like Eve did in Genesis chapter 3, right? The devil made me do it. He's the one that made me. You ever hear that or say that? Boy, Satan's really attacking me today. And they, and, or, the, uh, you know, I've got a demon of this attacking me today. They find a demon in everything, right? Like, hey, that coffee is way too hot. You know, a coffee's hotter than it was yesterday. And, oh, that reminds me, hell is hot. This must be the coffee demon, you know, trying to scald me for, you know, and anything, right? Your car didn't start today. Oh, that must have been the demon of automobiles. There are people that have this kind of weird obsession and everything's a demon. Everything that's happened to them is a demon. Now, the reason why I think some of us would say, I think, I think the majority of us probably fall on that first one, right? Like, uh, do we really need to focus on them? Because we don't, there's not, we don't really experience them much and they may not even be real. I think the reason why a lot of people deny the existence of Satan and demons and think of it as fairy tale like is one because you might be all of us have been have been influenced with this but you might have been particularly influenced by what we'll call modernism which is a few hundred year enlightenment period where scientific rationalism taught us that there is only physical there is no spiritual that if people try to say that there's a spiritual realm that's just kookily stuff it's just physical. Every, I mean, everything we see and touch and smell and taste and, and, and hear, and, and that, that's, all, that's all reality. And so there is no spiritual realm at all, particularly Satan and demons, which is where we can't see them. So that's where the, the Bible says they, they exist. And so they're, 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 it's not a new way of thinking. I mean, it's not a, uh, or I'm sorry, it's not, a, it's not a common way of thinking throughout the history of the world. It's actually rather new, and it came in with the Enlightenment. But most of us, that's been our entire existence. And the world that we live in, that's where we are. And so we're very rational, touch and feel people. So that's one reason why people may say that's fairy tale stuff. A second reason people may say it's fairy tale stuff is because of, of we, a lot of us, I think, suffer from this thing that I'll call chronological snobbery. And that is, we tend to look back upon people who lived much earlier than we did in those primitive days. And we say, ah, those people are primitive people. They didn't understand things like we do. They invented mythical figures and you know, I've gone to college and I'm highly developed and evolved and I'm smarter than they are. That's just, that's, you know, and we tend to have that. I mean, we really have that. There's, it's, just, it's, it's chronological snobbery. hundred years from now, people are going to look back at us and think we're, we're ridiculously dumb as well for the way we've handled a lot of things in recent years probably. So some of you might deny Satan and demons because of one of those things, because of, of, of uh, well, you know, um, it's, not, it's just not reality. Or because, well, they didn't know us. I mean, they, they obviously thought there were. But there's a possibility. And here's a, third, here's a third thing. There's a possibility that some might deny Satan and demons because you actually believe in spirituality. You're like, what the heck do you mean, Chris? Isn't that where they exist? Well, here's the thing. Spirituality, just in general, is very similar to demonology. Just because something is spiritual does not mean that it's good, does not mean that it's biblical. Much of what is spiritual in the spiritual realm is actually demonic and satanic. And we live in a day, I think, when you meet something, like if someone just says, oh, I'm a spiritual person, we just assume, oh, they're, okay, cool, they're on the same team, they're fine, but be careful. They're probably, they may not be on the same team. If your meditation, for example, or your religion, your spirituality that you're practicing, your supernatural experience, it might actually be demonic and satanic. So I don't want you to have, I, I don't want anybody to have this unhealthy, inordinate obsession with Satan and demons, right? But we believe in them. And we emphasize Jesus. 
while we believe in them. That's the, that's the key here. And I don't want you to also deny the existence of Satan and demons and just settle for like a vague general spirituality or anything like that. But just as Christ did, we will encounter Satan and demons. And that's one of the things I hope to bring out, to draw out from this today, to help us to see how this happens in our lives. One of the greatest commentators and New Testament scholars who explains Satan and demons really well, I highly recommend his name is Clinton Arnold. He's written some really good modern day commentary about Satan and demons. He makes a really interesting statement. He says this, that a servant of Christ can no more avoid demons than a gardener can avoid weeds. So if you're going to serve Jesus, you're going to meet the demonic at some point. Whether you recognize it or not, you will. You will. There's just no avoiding it. Just like you're going to tend to your garden. If you're going to have a garden, you're going to have to deal with weeds. And that's just the way it is. If you're going to have a ministry, and trust me, I can look back over the years of my ministry and know, you know, I may not have recognized something that has happened as demonic, but there's no doubt that demonic activity has been happening around and in the realm, especially during times when the ministry has been going good. And that's, you can count that like clockwork. And that's not just for pastors and teachers or people who lead worship. That's for you. That's you have a ministry as well. Perhaps with your family, perhaps with people that you work with, whatever your ministry is, your ministry will be attacked. Just like a garden, you have to pull weeds. And so I want to talk about Satan for a second. All right. I'm not going to give him glory, but I want us to know who he is. All right. And so the first thing I'm going to give you a few things. I'm going to tell you what the points are. I got three main points here. Point number one is this. This is, this is something we need, we need to know off the top about Satan. Satan is not equal with God. All right? He is not equal with God. It's not like there are two gods, good God and bad God, <laughs> yin and yang. It's, it's God the creator and then created things. That's it. That's all there is. Satan is among the created things. Satan was an angel that was created by God to glorify and honor and obey God. But angels aren't perfect. Only God is perfect. And so what happens is that angel fell because he wanted to overtake the throne of God. You can actually read more about this. So, so write these down, okay, if, you, if you're writing down. Isaiah, I'll give you four places to go and read about, about Satan in the scripture and what happened with him in the, in, the, in the historic heavenly realm. Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, Genesis chapter 3, and Ephesians chapter 6. Just, just really quick, sort of, okay, if you go there, this will help give you uh, a really good picture, a really good idea, theologically speaking, about Satan and demons, all right? And about why they are, why they are there. Why, how did that even happen, okay? And so the, the first thing we need to know is that Satan and demons are not equal to God. They are created beings. So there are angels who rebelled against God and Satan was cast out of heaven. And then, you know, the, the book of Revelation talks about his tail swept, uh, swept, you know, a, a bunch of demons as well that came out of heaven. It's like they were influenced by him as well. And it's basically a whole group of, of, of demons and, 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 and Satan himself who declared war on God and God cast them out. So when we're talking about Satan, we've got to remember, he's not, he's not creator, God is. He's not all present, God is. Like the song that we just sang today is perfect, right? God omniscient. Satan's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. God is. God omnipresent. Satan's not all-present. He cannot be everywhere at once. Only God can. Satan's not omnipotent, all-powerful. Only God is. All right? He doesn't share any of the attributes of God. He's not in any way at all equal with God. He is a created being that rebelled against God. He's not the other God. All right? So whenever you see those like God versus Satan things, right? I think a guy named Carmen used to have a song about Satan and Jesus battling it out, right? Like almost like they were equals. They're not, not anywhere near equal. So that's number one. Number two. Satan's not our only enemy, okay? Satan, Satan does his work in more ways than just his own personal work. 
He does his work through, you know, through lots of, in lots of ways. There are false teachers. There are false apostles. There are false religions and false Christians. There, you know, he has an entire army at his service. And not just the demons, in fact. People that you know. People that you encounter here. Now, he has, a, you know, he has liars and unrepentant sinners and all kinds. Of, I mean, just, just that's, he works in all these ways. But the Bible gives us three categories of, of opposition that Christians will face. And the, the devil is one of them. But Paul says that the, the, main, the main categories of opposition that we face are the world and the flesh and the devil. So that's three, three main areas that we come into opposition with, with, with Satan in general. Now there is Satan and demons. There is. But the truth is... If you're getting attacked spiritually, it's probably not Satan, okay? Satan can only attack one person at a time. He can't be everywhere. I mean, he can send, I guess, uh, uh, you know, demons out and, and do his work, but there's still a limited number of demons to attack a limited number of persons. And so the truth is, if you're getting harassed and you feel like you're being harassed in the spiritual realm, it's probably not Satan. In fact, he might be harassing someone who's in a position of like mass world evangelism or something like that. Like, I doubt if he's attacking me or you personally, right? You might be getting harassed. I mean, it's real. Make no mistake. It's real. Your battle and your struggle is real, but probably not Satan. So we can't really say, oh, Satan's doing this. No, he's, he's, probably, he's probably in Washington, D.C. Probably, that's probably where he is, right? He's somewhere else. <laughs> it could be a demon that's harassing you, or it could be one of the other categories of opposition. So let's talk about those other categories for a second. So this will be like point two A and B and C. Paul says the flesh is one of the internal, it's, it's, it's one of the oppositions that we have. The flesh is this internal predisposition that we all have toward rebellion, toward sin. It, it's our own sinful tendencies. It's our own sinful inclinations to, to just want to do things that we shouldn't do, to want to say things that we shouldn't say, to want to type things that we shouldn't type. Whatever's relevant to us today, it's just our own internal desires to just rebel and do evil, to not please God, to not glorify God. And so for most of us, most of the time, our issue isn't Satan at all. Our issue is the flesh. I mean, that's really, truly the, the, the majority, the majority of the time when we're struggling, when we're battling, we feel a spiritual battle. It's right here. It's, it's us. It's ourselves. Again, there's a limited number of demons. I mean, think about this, okay? Why in the world would Satan commission a demon to attack you if you're already destroying yourself? I mean, if it's a battle and you're already giving in to your own fleshly desires, whatever those desires are, then why in the world would Satan send one of his few soldiers that he has to attack you directly? You're killing yourself. He doesn't need to. And that's why a lot of people in the United States, quite frankly, don't see the demonic, demonized people because we're killing ourselves with our own sin. We're killing ourselves with our own flesh, with our own sinful desires. That's one of the reasons why it's so easy to say, I don't believe in demons, they don't exist. Well, go to other places in the world and you'll see that they're not killing themselves. There are, there's, there's demonic activity taking place. So how do we do this then? How does this, how does this fit in? What, what do we mean by you're killing yourself? Well, we do it through a lot. I mean, the most common one is just unrepentant sin, just habitual sin that we don't recognize as sin. We think that it's good. There might be other ways. Like that seem more, that seem more uh, righteous, like spirituality that's not Christ-centered. And that's a real, I mean, there's, it's a real fine line, right? Between spirituality and Christ-centered spirituality. Religion that's not Christ-centered. Anything that deals with pride and arrogance, all of that. I mean, Satan's favorite tactic is pride. He began with pride with Jesus when he tempted him. One of the reasons why Satan was cast out of heaven was because of pride. He had pride. He wanted to be on the throne of God. He tempts us with pride. We call it self-esteem today. We need more self-esteem. I mean, and, and if any of us are bound by these things... It's not Satan that needs to attack you. It's just that your flesh is taking care of his job for him. He doesn't need to come to you. So there's the devil that we'll talk about in a little more depth here in a minute. There's the flesh. And then there's also the world. 
I think a handful of weeks back, it's been a couple months now probably, I don't know when, I remember talking in our services about the world and what the world is, the world and all of its desires, the world and all of its cares. The world is, when, when the Bible speaks of the world, it's talking about the corporate systems and the structures and the ideologies that are just opposed to God, that aren't giving glory to God. So like, if you just go along in, in throughout the world today and you just believe what everyone else believes, and you sort of behave the way everyone else behaves, you'll be, you'll be living a satanic life. I, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's what it is. You just will. I mean, it might be a spiritual life, but it will be a satanically spiritual life. It might be a culturally acceptable life, but it will be a satanically acceptable life. And so the world is again, the world and its systems, the world and, and its beliefs is just against God. You know, the scripture says you either for God or against him. So how does the world then work against you? Well, the world and everything in the world tempts you to sin. The world tempts you to use people. The world tempts you to disobey God, to disbelieve in, in what God's word says, to live more for your own glory instead of the glory of God, to be a consumer in this world instead of being generous to others. And all of that is just examples of the world system. That's what we're talking about when we say the world, and, that, and that's what comes against us. So again, we live in the United States of America, one of the greatest places where you can see the world at work. And the system that I'm talking about, the American dream is part of the world <laughs> and all of that. So you have three main economies here of opposition, three main enemies, I should say. The world to the system of thinking and corruption that teaches you lies about you and lies about God and the world and your place in the world. And you have the flesh, which is just coming from your internal predisposition toward rebellion and sin, and, and it, it brings death. And then there is, of course, Paul says, the devil. A real enemy of God and his servants and demons are real, all of them working together to get your flesh to follow the world rather than the scriptures. That's kind of, so we have this whole potpourri of evil coming against us here. Enemies. And so the second point then with those little sub points is Satan is not our only enemy. And we've got to recognize that. And the third point is this. Third point is you need to know your enemy, which is why we're talking about this today so that we can get to know our enemy. Satan's not like God. He's not God. He's not in any way equal to God. He's not our only enemy, but he's a real enemy. And so number three is you need to know this enemy. When I say Satan and demons, we got to know who he is and what they do. We need to understand them. Second Corinthians chapter. Uh, you don't have to go there, Allie. I've got it. Uh, I don't have the. I think it's chapter two. But the New International Version, which is the version of the Bible I kind of grew up on, I, 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 and so I like the way it says this, actually. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that Satan will not outwit us, providing that we understand his schemes. Satan won't outwit us. He won't be able to outwit you if you understand the schemes that he uses. You see, well, have any of you ever been in a fight? <laughs> You're a bit like, I'm in a real fight, Right? Or maybe even, I guess I should put it this way. Most, more people have been in this. A modified version of a fight would be an athletic competition. I think, I think we, could, we could say that, right? Well, if you're going to beat your, your, your opposition in that, com in that com competitive environment, you know that the key, one of the main keys to beat your opponent is to study and know your opponent, to know their strengths, to know their weaknesses. If you know your opponent, your odds of winning go up. This is why, like in football, film study is incredibly important. If you are facing an opponent next weekend and you've not looked at any film on them, you've not watched any game at all, maybe you watched a casual game a while back and you've, you've heard people talk about them a little bit, but you didn't really believe in them that much, and you just went into that game, even if they're not as strong as you, you might get your butts kicked because their schemes 
are going to outwit you because they probably studied you and they know you really well. You've got to study. You've got to know them. You know their strengths. And then if you know their strengths, you can defend yourself against their strengths. You know their weaknesses, then you can attack their weaknesses. I'm kind of a casual fan of MMA. I mean, I'll watch it now and then, not when you have to pay $75 to watch one fight that lasts two minutes, like Conor McGregor's most recent fight. Just watch the Twitter the next day and see that. See him laying there like, uh, all right. But I, I like MMA. I don't like doing it. I'm not saying that I could get hurt if I did it. <laughs> but but I, would in, in, I would inevitably get hurt. But I like watching it. And what you find in MMA, and I've got a, a really dear friend that has his own uh, gym in New Jersey. And, uh, uh, he's, and they, they have all sorts of uh, different styles of MMA there. Right? There's jiu-jitsu and Mai Tai and boxing and wrestling and all these sorts of different disciplines of, of defending yourself and, and fighting, combating people. And each of those different disciplines have different strengths and weaknesses, right? So if you're a wrestler, like if, you, if, you're, if your discipline is wrestling and you're up against a guy who's a boxer, which we've kind of seen that before, I think that's one of the things that you see, it's one of the interesting things about MMA is these different, dis, different disciplines fight each other and you see how they prepare for one another. And the better they prepare, the better chance they have against these people. So if you're a wrestler and you're up against a boxer, one who punches really well, then the first thing you gotta do is start kicking their legs out from underneath them because if, if, if like, if he plants that front foot, and he plants that front foot, that's, I mean, that's the key to getting power. You plant that front foot, he's going to knock you out. But if you can kick away his front leg and get him on the ground, well, now you've got the advantage because you're in your strength and he's in his weakness, right? If you're a wrestler, now you're in control on the floor. You've maintained position on him. So if you're someone like who has a good stand-up game, like Mai Tai, like a, it'd be like what you see a kickboxer doing. You don't have much of a ground game if you're that kind of a discipline. And so the best way to defeat a person who's a stand-up fighter, like the best person to go against a Mai Tai fighter would be a jiu-jitsu guy. And if you're a jiu-jitsu guy, they, I mean, they get you on the ground. All of a sudden, they got you in some weird hold, and before you know it, you're out cold. Like, what the heck happened? 30 seconds, you know, a minute, a couple minutes later. Well, they get you on the ground, they do that. But a Mai Tai guy is like all about fists and elbows and kicks and things like that. They're all about working from the top. And they get you on the ground, now you're in trouble. All right, so here's the point of all that. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. Know what they're strong. Know the, know the strengths of your enemy. Know the weaknesses of your enemy. And, and then if you do, you can defend yourself at points of we, at your points of weakness. And then you can attack when you know you're strong and where he's weak. And so here's the reality. If you don't know Satan, and I'm not talking about glorifying Satan in any, by any chance, by any means at all. But if you don't know Satan, if you're just indifferent about him and his schemes, you will be defeated. That, that's the big idea. All right. So here we go. Let's go back to the story now. Okay. Uh, verse 35. I think we left off at 34. I think. So Satan has somehow gotten access to somebody in that congregation, in that synagogue. Jesus shows up. Jesus starts speaking. He's God in human flesh, and that becomes obvious because the demon recognizes him. The one who, who, who exists in that realm recognizes him. As he's preaching and teaching, this demon now is being manifested through this person. All right? Whether it's possession. The Bible doesn't use the word possession very much at all. It's just, it uses the word demonized. We'll talk about that in a second, but it's different. It could, be, it could be just be influenced. But anyway, there's a conflict, right? All of a sudden now, the synagogue has turned into an MMA octagon, and there's a conflict, a real conflict here going on between Jesus and this demon. And it says, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown the man on the ground in their midst, he then came out of him, having done the man no harm. And they were amazed and said to one another, what is this word? Like, I mean, how does he speak this kind of word? That he commands with authority unclean spirits and they listen to him and they leave. And it says reports went about him everywhere throughout the region. And they're amazed. They're amazed by his authority. The authority of Jesus to command these spirits. You see, that would happen in that day even before Jesus came, and those rabbis would try to deal with it. Like they would, they would have these you know, ways of trying to deal with demons, but it was more like poltergeist and the exorcist and Rosemary's baby and all that, right? It went really bad, really fast. They didn't know what they were doing. They would come in with these like incantations and uh, weird ways of doing things, and it just was like, 
okay, let's, let's just do our best to just ignore what's happening right now because they couldn't deal with it. And then Jesus shows up with complete divine authority and he says, you go. <laughs> That's it. Done. Simple. And the demon obeys him because he's God and they have to obey God because God's authority is ultimate over all, including them. Now, some of us are probably naturally thinking, hmm, how did this guy in the church get demonized, right? I mean, how, the Bible doesn't, like I said, the Bible doesn't generally use the word demon-possessed. Some translations will use that, but that, that's a limited way that a demon will actually influence a person, full possession. I mean, and that, rarely do you see that, but it uses the word demonized. And that can mean anything. It can mean influenced by the demonic. It can mean externally oppressed in some way. It can mean completely controlled. That, 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 that demon is actually speaking through this, using this person's voice. So there's just a wide range of usage and meaning. But, you know, the question still remains. How does that happen, right? How does that happen? So here's what we're going to, we need to, this is kind of where we, this is what we really need to hear right now. So perk up here. I'm going to use an analogy that Jesus uses uh, later on where he talks about a house. He refers to our body and our life, who we are, as a house. And that's a pretty common theme. So you are a house, all right? And he talks about Satan and demons and how they get in this house that you live in, that your life is in. What happens to your house? Now think about your house just in general, right? You got a home, you got a house. What happens if you leave all of your windows wide open and you leave all the doors wide open and you just invite anyone to come, all the wrong people to come over to your house? And these people come in and they move in, they stay forever and they trash your place and they do horrible things and they torment you and they destroy your house and they just kind of, it's like before long, it's just like, wow, they've just taken over my life. You don't even realize it, they've just taken over my life. And, and that's, that's what it's like. Your life is like a house. And, and it can look like what I just described through sin, through unrepentant sin, through habitual sin, or just like I said, general spirituality that's not Christ-centered, dabbling in things that speak of spiritual power and sources other than God and you know, the God of the Bible that we worship. And it can also be you know, the obvious ones like the occult and witchcraft and so on and so forth, things like that. Or it could be things that are more relevant to perhaps those who tune in on church services, like maybe drunkenness or uh, impure sexuality or all ki any kinds of things that just don't get repented of. All kinds of things. So what you're doing when you participate in these things without any repentance whatsoever, it's like you're opening up the windows. It's like you're taking the hinges off your doors and you're just inviting unclean people and unclean things in. And after a while, it can go really bad for you if you just keep doing that. You see, sometimes I don't think that we look at sin like that. We don't see the spiritual realm of sin's effects. We tend to only look at sin as breaking a law. Like, I, I, like I real, man, I, God, I realize I hurt you. I broke your law. If I just ask for forgiveness, it's all, it's all good. It's like paying my penance and it's good. And that is true. I mean, that's partly true. Sin is breaking the law. But sin is also opening a door. Sin is opening a window. It's inviting it's inviting something in that you don't want to be there. How many of you tonight, maybe not tonight because it's winter time, but on a Sunday morning or on a, a summer morning perhaps, how many of you would go to bed with, maybe you, wouldn't, maybe you have your windows open, but just to, how many of you just take the hinges off your doors, leave your doors open, leave all your windows open and go to sleep and sleep well? Maybe some of you weirdos would. I know my wife would not like that. <laughs> she check, double checks and triple checks that door all the time. Even if you live in a really good neighborhood or in a secluded place, I doubt that you're doing that, Ben, where you live. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, well, we all know. I mean, it's middle, middle of Middleport. We know. We're not. Yeah, my doors are locked. Yeah, yeah. Even if you live in a great neighborhood or out, out, on, out on some land on your own, that, that's, that's risky. Like, you're like, uh, I don't know if I want to do this or not, right? I don't know if I want to do that. Some of us do that spiritually every day, just through unrepentant sin, habitual sin, folly, just maybe dabbling in other religion or spirituality. 
And, and that's what happens, right? Even as Christians, that's how it can happen. Now, as a non-Christian, if you're an unbeliever in Christ, your house already belongs to Satan, right? I mean, because that's, that's, that's the reality. You either belong to God or you belong to Satan. That's the reality with every person in the world. So if you're a non-Christian, you might be nice. You might be spiritual even. You might uh, be moral. You might be decent and good according to the to, you know, to people that are around you. But the truth is Satan wants you to believe all those things. He wants you to believe that you're a wonderful person because he loves pride. And as long as you're happy being on his team and you don't even realize you're on his team, he's not going to disrupt you with anything. He doesn't need to send demons to you. You've already done it. He already owns you. He owns your house. He owns your life. And he doesn't need to. Right? He, he just... He doesn't need to start doing any kind of devastation. He's like, whoa, let them think they're okay. But your house either belongs to Satan or it belongs to God. And so for people who are Christians, does Satan own your house? Can Satan indwell your house if you're a Christian? No. No. He cannot. But if you open up a window and you open up a door... To all kinds of things that he might want to come in with, he'll come in. He'll, 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 he'll start working. He'll start influencing your life through people and other events and things. That, and he'll give you things that shouldn't be there. Absolutely. Absolutely we can open the doors and windows to Satan as Christians. And so we don't know whether or not this man in our scripture was a Christian or not, was a believer in God or not. But what we do know is that he opened the doors and the windows to his house... Where, to the point where he is fully influenced and this demon is speaking through this man when Jesus shows up. And there's an actual demon that's connected in some way to this guy. Right? He's, demon, he's demonized. A Christian, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. A true Christian cannot be because Jesus possesses you. Jesus owns you. So a Christian cannot be fully possessed by a demon. But a Christian can be demonically influenced by all the openings that we've left in our house. It very, is, it very much is a reality. And so what, I, what I'm saying is this. When, when you know that you have sin and you pray for that sin, you, you say, God, please forgive me for this unrepentant sin. God, please come in to my life again. Make sure that you include in your prayer, hey, God, close any of the doors that I've allowed, allowed to stay open. Take back any ground that I've given. Everything and everyone that does not love and serve you and serve Jesus, anyone that has ill intentions toward me, I just want to command them to get away from me and my family. I pray against all the enemies of you and all the enemies of your servants, of which I feel like I am one, all of their works and all of their effects. I command them to get away from me and my family, and I ask you, Holy Holy Spirit, you come in. You come in and you take over residence once again in my heart and in my life. You live in me and in my home and in my life and you have your way with me and my family. That's what you need to pray. All this, When you're praying about your sin, make sure you ask God to do that, to refill you again. Because what does Jesus say? Even if you get rid of the demons and you don't have the Holy Spirit come to refill and take up residence in your home, your proverbial home, what do you get? He says this later somewhere else. You'll get seven more. And he cast out a demon from a man. And he tells the guy, make sure that you, that you, go, you don't continue sinning. Make sure that you, 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 you invite me back into your heart. Because if you don't, seven more will come back. It's a really serious matter. You see, I think right now, <laughs> okay, all right, as I, even at like, I'm, I don't know, 45 minutes or so into it maybe, Satan might be whispering in some of your ears like, this is crazy talk. <laughs> I mean, what he's talking about that these people have, it's a biomedical condition, right? They, these people are mentally disturbed. That's all it is. I mean, these are the kind of people who hear voices and things. And these Christians are making it out to be some really s sensational thing. Please, please understand this. People who dismiss the spiritual and only you know, elevate the physical reality in this world... They're completely ignoring half of the reality in which we live every single day. I mean, this is, just, this is just half of our lives. This is half of our existence. We exist for God. We believe that we're going to be with God for eternity. So what does that mean? Where at? In the physical? No, in the spiritual? We, we believe there, there, are other, <laughs> there are other things going on constantly. 
This man that meets Jesus is in torment spiritually, and Jesus delivers him. He delivers him. So let's, let's move on in the story here so we can, we can move on. What happens next, and this is, this is sort of where, where it uh, ends, the, what, the section we're in today, is the scene shifts toward, from the synagogue, they go to Peter's house, Simon Peter. So Peter is very important historically. We know, you know his house, and his house is actually very important because his house sort of becomes the, the epicenter for Jesus' ministry, the majority of his ministry. Peter's house is, is small. It's not necessarily big. So, but we're looking at, again, a small town, small house, simple working class man. He's a fisherman, and Jesus lived there. A lot. I mean, Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head himself, so he would actually stay at Peter's house a lot. Other disciples would live there, stay there for periods of time. The early church started meeting in Peter's house. It's a really important house historically to our faith. Christianity started as a house church at Peter's house. And so let's just, again, real quick, read these two verses, 38 and 39, at what happened at Peter's house. So Jesus arose, and he left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house, Simon Peter's house. Now, Simon... His mother-in-law, it says, was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to Jesus on her behalf, and he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to cook dinner for them. <laughs> Just began to serve. Okay, I feel great. Let, let me give you guys some dinner. So Peter's mother-in-law is really sick, it says, with a high fever. And now remember, who's recording these words? Luke. What was Luke? A physician. A doctor who operates in the physical realm, the reality, rational, logical realm. She has a high fever, and we're, I mean, what, what, they probably wouldn't have mentioned it. I mean, they're really concerned. So with this high fever, I mean, she's probably approaching the place where she could die. They can't get that fever to break. They're trying everything, so they just appeal to Jesus, please heal her. And he comes over to her, and he prays, and he commands the sickness, like, just like he did the demon, to vacate this person. And it does. And so now we see that Jesus has authority over demons and sickness. Do we believe in sickness? Well, yeah. Do we believe in demons? Yeah. Do we believe Jesus has authority over sickness and demons? Yes, we do. Do we believe that God heals people? Yes, we do. Some get healed in this life, and some, you know, some of God's children get healed at the end with the resurrection of the, from the dead, where there is no more sickness, there is no more death, there is no more destruction and no more tears. Our God is a healing God, and ultimately we will all be healed in his time. And we pray now for God to heal people, just as Jesus did then. And sometimes we see it, if it's his will in that moment, he will, just as he did with this woman, Peter's mother-in-law. And so Jesus is having a pretty intense day already, right? He's, he's preached, he's cast out a demon, and he's healed a woman. <laughs> and she gets up and starts taking care of him, maybe making him something to eat. I don't know. I'm assuming that's what it is. She's got the gift of hospitality. But Jesus is still not even done. Verses 40 and 41. I mean, you think Jesus needs a day off? I think at this point it's like, oh, you could probably use a little time off. Nope, not Jesus. Here we go. Now, when the sun was setting, so the Sabbath is over now. It's getting, it's getting to be Sunday, their, their day, our day would be Monday. All who had any who were sick with various diseases, they brought them to Jesus. And, they, and, and he laid his hands on them, every single one of them, and healed them. And demons also came out from many who were there, crying out, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Because they knew he was the Christ. Doesn't that seem odd to you? I mean, I, I feel like we could preach an entire sermon on this, but we, this is supposed to be the end of the sermon, so I'll just say this really quickly, all right? Because it does need a little bit of explaining. So he casts demons out of people. Those demons know who he is. They say it. They proclaim it, right? They're saying, he's the Christ. You're the Christ. What are you doing? You're the anointed one of God. You're the holy one of God. But Jesus says, I'm going to silence you. You're not allowed to go around saying that. Well, the question that you might have is why? Why would Jesus do this? Why are they not allowed to say that truth? It is truth, right? Why does he want them saying it? I think this is why. Because we already know John the Baptist was already the forerunner to Jesus. And now Jesus is going to speak for himself. He doesn't need a demon to take part in the ministry of proclaiming who he is. That would actually be very confusing to people. And so Jesus says, you know, they're... You're not going to say this anymore. Okay, so here he is. Jesus is in Peter's house. 
He's kind of get the picture. He's in his house, his little house filled with people, line of people outside. It's getting dark. Sabbath is over, but they're all wanting to come and see Jesus. And he prays for every single one of them and he heals every single one of them. And he commands all the demons to go away. And so I'm going to conclude here. So I'm going to grab my guitar, but one more thought. One of my goals today is this. I don't want you to be scared of Satan and demons. But I think even bigger goal is, I don't want you to neglect them either. When you see someone who is spiritually oppressed and damaged, don't just automatically judge them and get self-righteous, right? I mean, like, well, there's a reason why you've done that. Have a mind of compassion. Pray for them. Speak the truth of Scripture into their lives. I mean, you know, see, see our world is as being at war and see people as being captives in this war and see an enemy that is devouring and destroying people and understand that this is not just something that has stopped since the Bible days. It continues. And Jesus is still setting captives free. That's what he's about. That's what he said that he would do. Remember at the beginning of his ministry that we quoted last week from Isaiah, he said that, that, his, that the spirit of the Lord has filled him and he has, he, has, he has anointed him to speak good news, to preach good news to the poor and to, to set the captives free. And so if you have opened up your life to Christ, you can repent of your sin. If you've opened up the windows to, to evil and, to, and you've opened up the doors to your life to allow evil to come in in some form or some fashion, you can repent and ask the Holy Spirit to come in, lock down the doors, sh shut the doors, lock down the windows, and you can command all of that to go away, to stay away. Satan and his effects and the effects of your flesh and the world and all of that, Jesus has authority over it all. And it's not because you're powerful, we're powerful, but it's because he's victorious. Jesus is victorious over our enemy. And that's what happens. How is he victorious? It all comes to this every single Sunday, every time you talk about Jesus, he's victorious by going to the cross, which is what we focus on when we take communion here in a minute. It's what we focus on when we come and we commune with him. We say, look, the whole reason why I can have this victory over evil is because of what you did on the cross. Colossians chapter two says this, that in doing so, he died for our sins. And in doing so, he disarmed the powers and principalities and spirits, and he triumphed over them. He triumphs over them canceling any right that they have to us. They don't have any right to you. So through sin and rebellion and folly, we join Satan in his war. That's what happens. And through repentance and faith in Jesus because of his death and burial and resurrection, our allegiance to Satan is canceled and he has no more hold over you. Our freedom in Christ is granted. God's no longer our enemy. But but, but now Jesus becomes our authority. And like Jesus speaking the word of God in power, Jesus delegates his authority to us to be able to not be afraid of this stuff and say, look, you have no way in my life. And so I'll just close with this scripture. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says this, for in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in Jesus Christ, all of the fullness of God dwells. God became man. And you have, Paul says, you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all authority. So as long as you're filled with him, then none of these, none of these things can, can bother you, can, can come in. The, the, what he's talking about is the powers and the principalities and the spirits and the demons. Jesus is the highest authority over all. He's God who's come to save us and he fills us so that we might have his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the same spirit he had when he was there commanding those demons to go. His resurrection authority over Satan and demons is our resurrection and our authority. And so, yes, we believe in Satan and demons. We just don't emphasize them because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus' authority. But the bottom line is, if, if, if you're not a Christian, you belong to Satan. And, and for some, Satan's tactic, for, for some, is you know, 
he is to just make, make people content and happy, that there's no sense of urgency to, to, to need Jesus. And if you are a Christian, you're not possessed by Satan in any way. You're not, you're, but, but you are affected by him through unrepentant sin and habitual sin. And you open the doors and windows to him, inviting people and things into your life that, that need to get out, that you need to repent of, and kick them out and lock the door with Jesus' authority and ask the Holy Spirit to just come in and clean your house. All right, let's, let's pray. And then we'll respond in worship and communion. God, I, I, I do pray right now against the enemy and against his servants and against their work and their effects in our lives. And God, I pray that you would forgive us of our sins. That's, that's where we have to start today. I pray that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that you would reveal to us the authority, the resurrection authority of Jesus. And so, Jesus, we right now just proclaim your victory, the victory that you have given to us by dying on the cross where you paid our debt and you freed us from the slavery of sin and you defeated all of our enemies of flesh and the world and Satan and all the powers that come with that. And you have claimed authority over all of that, and you've given it to us, Lord. May we, may we not deny Satan, be guilty of denying his existence and, and demons and not taking them seriously and recognizing that they really, truly do want to do us harm. But may we confidently rebuke them in your name. And might we do so also hum humbly and confidently, not arrogantly, because that's what kind of trap the enemy would want us to fall into being spiritually prideful. So we come humble today, thanking you that you've given us this authority. And we, we recognize the importance of knowing our enemy, knowing the strengths and weaknesses so we can defeat them. And so, Father, those of us who are Christians, I pray that we would repent of our sin here today. We would shut the windows and the doors. We would lock the doors and never invite the enemy back into our lives again. And Father, for those who are non-Christians, I pray that they would become Christians. I pray that their house would become a house that you now dwell in. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.